Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Wool Academy podcast. This is episode 123 and today I'm really happy to be chatting to Dr. Paul Swan from the Australian Wool Exchange, in short AWEX, where he is the program manager of Sustainer Wool. I've known Paul for a very long time. Um, actually, when I started working at the International Wool Textile Organization, in 2011, that's when I already met uh, Paul uh, where, where, during the time when he was working at AWI uh, and the Wilmar Company and he's been a great mentor for me uh, during my time and we did a lot of work together and it's therefore a pleasure that I had uh, yeah, the honor of speaking to him about uh, sustainable and about... Um, Wool certifications in general. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Bye for now. Well, I'm really pleased to have Paul Swan from AWEX on my podcast today. He is responsible for Sustainer Wool, and that's what we'll mainly be talking about today. And actually, I wanted to have Paul on the podcast for the past four years. So I'm really, really happy <laughs> to finally welcome you here. Hi, Paul. How are you? Oh, listen, this is a great privilege. Thank you, Lisa, after so long. And um, it's great to be part of this. I, I, I'm a fan of it. And I, um, you have some very interesting people. So it's, I'm not badly offended you've taken so long to get to me, but it's, it's just great to be part of it. Yeah. So why don't we just dive right in? Um, I would, although I know you very well, I think our audience would really enjoy hearing a little bit about yourself. And then also okay. about sustainable. I well, uh, my look. I'm a. I live in Sydney in Australia. I'm a, a textile scientist by training. Um, I manage the sustainable program for the Australian Wool Exchange, which is I'm really proud about and passionate about. Um, I've previously I, I worked for 16 years or thereabouts for the Australian Wool Innovation. I, I was a senior manager of R and D investments. And before that, I've had my own sheep consulting business. I don't consult with sheep, but I work with farmers who have sheep. And before that, I was a CSIRO scientist for about nine years. So I've had a long career um, in the wool industry, but mainly on the innovation side of the, the business, which is something the wool industry does very well and it, it resources well. Yeah, and you and I have worked a lot together during when I was working at the IWTO and you've been a really great mentor during that time for me. And I think we've uh, had quite some good projects that we kicked off. So, well, that's Lisa, it's been, I loved working with you because you were the Secretary General of IWTO, if I recall. Um, but we worked um, together to get a number of the important working groups going. So the Sustainable Practices Working Group, the Wool Biosecurity Working Group, the uh, Wool Health Working Group going. So um, yeah, we, we work together uh, very well to get to try and build industry uh, cohesion and actions across countries in some of these really important areas for the future of wool. Yep. Yeah, and it's nice to, that, to see that they're still ongoing so that our investment is still... Um bearing some fruits look we laid some excellent eggs <laughs> and the, the chickens have hatched and they're now running 
Excellent. And but yeah, now we're in different uh, places. Uh, you are yes. now with the Australian Wool Exchange. Change, and, correct. And yeah, so tell me a little bit more about sustainable. So look, sustainable um, is a uh, an integrity program first and foremost. So it allows growers to declare their on-farm practices and to put their hand up to be audited. It, it, the practices they declare cover the, the six major dimensions of sustainability. So that includes, for farmers, that includes animal health, welfare, the land management, chemical management. Uh, it includes the, the um, harvesting, the way we harvest uh, our products and the quality of the products. It includes um, record keeping the competence of the farmers and their training levels and those sorts of things. It also includes traceability and transport. So it's it's a really comprehensive um, declaration system or auditing system for growers. Um, it has over a thousand Australian growers actively participating um, around Australia. It's about 10, between 10 and 12% of the Australian wool clip is produced by growers who participate in this program which is something we're very proud about. Um, we have 19 and soon to be 20 supply chain partners. So these are post farm gate companies that have signed up to support the program and, and support the growers who are involved. And so this is a, uh, I guess it's a way for the world to help source wool from farmers who care, who put their hand up to be audited, um, so they're, they're professional and they care. Okay. And, but through a pipeline where we can, uh, we, that it has full traceability and certifiability of the product. So it's a, it's a system. There are other equivalent or similar systems in practice around the world. Uh, I think by last count, at my end, there were about eight different alternative systems doing similar sorts of things. Okay. And, um, but we, this system has a really, has developed a really strong foundation amongst Australian growers. It's now in its fifth year. Um, and so to grow to over a thousand growers is a, a pretty good, uh, rate of growth. And it was founded, it was created and founded by two Italian weavers working with uh, an Australian wool exporter and buyer. So it was developed by people that buy and process the wool. And it was developed in conjunction with some really smart growers, most of whom are still involved in the program. Yes, and maybe that leads a little bit into my next question. So uh, because there were these two Italian um, companies who started sustainable wool, um, but and I understand now they they don't own sustainable anymore. They have gifted actually the to the industry. They're, yeah, Lisa, you're right. So generous <laughs> to, to name to name names. Uh, Successori Radar, uh, which is based based in Biella, and Vitali Barberis Canonico, two of the most prestigious Italian wool weavers, um, and. Uh, their wholly owned company, which is called New England Wool, which is managed by a very clever fellow by the name of Andrew Blanche, 
set the program up. It rapidly grew um, around Australia and grew in one sense beyond their immediate needs. It grew to a scale where there was an opportunity for the industry to take it on on behalf of the whole industry. And uh, which, so the Australian Wool Exchange or AWEX um, took it on on behalf of the whole industry. AWEX is a, an independent quality systems company. It is a not-for-profit um, in Australia and it is owned by the whole industry and it must benefit the whole industry. So it was deeded to the industry to continue to operate on behalf of the whole industry for the betterment of that whole industry. And it's, it's, it was an incredibly generous thing that those two companies or those three companies did, but also far-sighted. Um, and so my role is essentially to build on those foundations that they laid and to make it um, more of a, I guess, a, a whole of industry, a more broad program across multiple supply chains, which is what I do. Yeah. And and this, the other aspect of my question is, so because there seemed to have been this need for such a standard, which is why they started it over five years ago. So maybe talk a little bit about the different aspects. You already explained some of the aspects of sustainable wool, okay. but maybe also explain why they are important. Um, Okay. That there's well, such a need for such a standard. Look, one of the things, Lisa, any of these standards, and sustainable is just a really pertinent example. They're driven by a couple of uh, trends that are changing the way consumers behave and, and, and source products. And it's modern consumers nowadays, um, particularly the generations coming through, the generations that are now leaving universities and school and those sorts of things, um, apart from being lazy and highly opinionated, but they, they, are, they are very discriminating consumers, what we call digital natives, and they, but they want to be confident about they're making ethical decisions with their purchases of food, cars, um, clothing especially. Um, so they, to exercise that choice, you need to have the ability to, for the supply chains to be able to offer not only traceability back to the farm gate or back to the whatever product, the roots of whatever product, back to the source, but you also need standards. There needs to be international or national standards for how products are produced. And in, in the livestock industries or in all of agriculture, we have an obligation to, to look after the country, to look after the animals, to look after the people that work in that environment, so whose labour goes in. And to an obligation to make sure our products are packaged safely and cleanly, uh, that there's traceability and that the national and where relevant international laws are complied with. So sustainable is one of the products, one of the systems that fulfills that requirement. It allows people to source wool with confidence that can be traced back through a, a long and complex supply chain to individual farms. Those farms, those farmers are subject to audit. They have completed stringent declarations. They've had to be trained. 
Um, we have we physically have to send inspectors to visit their farms and to check things. So these are farmers that are very, generally speaking, very proud of what they do, very conscious of uh, the way that they farm and who they produce their products for. So what we do is we help marry up and connect up conscious consumers to conscious farmers, okay? Through a, a supply chain with the, where they're in the middle, the, the processes care and they, they, they want to complete the paperwork and facilitate things. So in our case, um, we are an industry-owned version of this. It's industry-owned to help keep it as a minimum cost to um, to share things with other industries and with other industry programs because ultimately wool growers or farmers pay for a lot of all these costs, these inspections, these declarations. And um, so we're really proud of it. And I guess the most unique thing about what we do, Lisa, is a key part of it is AWEX as a quality systems company also manages the national program for training the people that class the wool. It maintains the standards for the bales within which we pack the wool. And it also facilitates the auction data standards. So it, it facilitates how wool is sold. It doesn't buy or sell wool, but it maintains those standards. So it's a what we do, it's not just about sustainability or welfare. It's also about product quality, and it's also about the integrity of, of how well the wool has been classed or prepared for the wool auctions, how we've minimised contamination risk. The wool is correctly described, correctly packaged in low contamination risk material. We've filled out the paperwork correctly. So it's we've added those other dimensions. So it's a very comprehensive system and I think a very future-oriented system. Yeah, I think when you buy a sweater, you don't really think about how how standardized every step of the process actually needs to be in order to to deliver something to somewhere. No, no we, but it's it's so true, Lisa. When, when we go to buy garments... Uh, What we look for is we normally look for, we either assess the brand, we, we know that brands have a reputation and if we, if we endorse the way that they behave, then we're happy to shop there. Um, but we, we don't get into all the technical stuff. You know, it's, we look for the brands and the retailers to do that stuff for us, to put the products in front of us that meet, uh, that, that are, Produce with care and respect, and uh, so we. A lot of what we do is invisible. A lot of what IWTO does is invisible at retail level. However, um, it's very, very important, and it's very important that the experts in the wool supply chain, all the different levels in the supply chain, communicate to make that consumer purchase experience positive. Uh, confidence instilling and um, as pleasurable as possible. Yeah, and I guess also thinking about sustainability, it's it's not related with sustainable per se, but with AWACS, like when you, even when you standardize the size of the bale, 
then you can ensure that a, a container is loaded in the best efficient economic way, which then reduces, you know, fuel costs or extra lots, etc. Lisa, it becomes really important. Do you know that mm. the bales, the size of the bales, the dimensions of the bales, and the amount of all we pack in there, uh, there are standards, there are limits. So that allows trucks that are loaded with wool bales to not be oversized, which would be a danger when they're crossing bridges or to pedestrians or other vehicles. So it's a, there's a safety aspect as well. Mm. The material We regulate the material that the packs are made out of. So it is a low contamination risk material. Um, I was involved early in my career in, in, on the innovation side of things and setting up some programs which looked to manage these risks on behalf of the whole industry. And a lot of the technologies we've developed have been adopted in other countries around the world. Mm. So, again, this is implicit. It's not something we talk about at retail, <laughs> but, but what it does, it helps guarantee products that are clean, that are contamination-free, that have been um, the logistics have operated with minimum cost, minimum waste. Mm. So it's efficient. So that's um, where we've... I guess we tend to work behind the scenes with a lot of these things. So a lot of people may not know about what we do and why it's important. Um, and we'll change that. But what we do is actually vitally important for the future of this relatively low volume, expensive fibre that operates in a really competitive space. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing I really liked, and I never thought of that, like that, what you said, that you have a conscious consumer, but you also have conscious um, growers and you're matching them up. And I never thought of that, that they actually have the same values. They just need to that, find each other. That is the key here. So I'm not saying we're like a dating agency, <laughs> but, but, um, but, what, but seriously, when you think about it, what we are trying to match up a, Consumers that have particular ethical values, they want to um, express those through what they purchase. With growers that really want to live up to those consumer expectations and are prepared to be measured for it and pay for it. And so our job is to help connect A to B, okay? And so in the what we provide is some infrastructure. Another way of thinking about this, Lisa, is that... Um, in, we've developed a whole new type of measurement that we apply to wool. Instead of measuring its thickness, like its diameter or its length or its strength or its color, all those physical measures, what we've actually put in develop is a, a, a system for, for specifying the ethical attributes. Okay? So what we allow, we've come up with a language that allows growers to specify that, to, to specify what they do and buyers to order it, okay? So it's, a, it's a, a really, it's not a novel concept. I mean, you and I did some work in 2015 on provenance, if you remember. You helped develop a really good presentation on this whole issue because it, it is something the whole industry has to grapple with and to standardise the language. Um, but essentially, this is about creating a, an information pipeline but what we're adding into that pipeline, we've increased the bandwidth so we can fit in more information. And this information we're fitting in 
connects conscious consumers to conscious growers. I think back then, now you're using the term bandwidth. Back then we used the term train and the train travels, but it depends on what we put on it, like which, and now we're putting on more, um, more data and... So in, in the COVID era, we're not talking about public transport anymore. No. <laughs> I'm, now, I'm, I'm now talking about pipes. Yeah. But but it's the same concept, Lisa. And it's so it's and look ultimately, if in five years' time we're talking again and the wool industry or the merino wool is in demand and conscious consumers are, are wearing merino wool or wool from around the world, a lot of that will have been because of our success in addressing their ethical preferences, okay? So this is a really important knowledge journey the industry has to go on. We have to be able to specify this stuff and let it flow through the pipeline efficiently. Okay, and so that's that's largely what we do. Yeah, and in your introduction, you mentioned that there are, you found eight other standards um, that are, do similar are, things. There, there's, look, there's, a lot of different variations on this, but the same basic concept. But how, what do you, I mean, a grower or also a retail brand, they could sign up for each and every one, but it's probably not very uh, economic and efficient. So how, oh, on what basis should they decide which standard to go for? It's a really good question, Lisa. One of the problems that we have at the moment is that we have this proliferation of standards to achieve the same end. So think of it this way. It's like having multiple different languages that are used to describe the same basic set of activities that occur on the farm. Now, um, what the industry has lacked is some way of translating one method into another. Okay, so that if you stand in, the, let's say if you and I are retailers and we want to source from conscious farmers, which standard do we choose? Which one's best? How do we compare? Which one's the most costly for my supply chain? Which one's got the most paperwork? Which one's the most statistically robust? Um, so there's a, a there are a lot of dimensions to this. And when you think about it from the wool processor perspective, imagine being a wool spinner because you, you you're trying to sell your yarn to different knitters and weavers. Now you they may have different sustainability schemes that they want to take part in. So you have to potentially keep stock for different schemes of the same sort of wool. So what it leads to is duplication, cost, inventory issues. So it's it's one of those problems that's, in one sense, it's hidden uh, in this industry. But when you talk to people in the pipeline, it's very real. It's It's complicated. The duplication is really unhelpful. Um, the confusion causes problems. Lack of understanding causes problems. So the, the key things here, um, the uh, only a subset of the schemes are rigorous, what we call certification standard schemes. We happen to be one. There are other schemes that have gone to the trouble of aligning themselves with and being certified under independent quality assurance or quality attestation schemes like ISO. Or there's 
they, their systems are aligned with the ICL method. Okay, so there's a subset of them have offered that sort of what we might call credibility and independence, which is really important because a lot of these schemes are privately owned. So they're operated for money. They're operated for profit. Um, and so you can have companies that operate the scheme also buy the wool and sell the product. And they're making a claim about a product of their own and they're the ones doing the auditing. So the, one of the issues that we need to be clear on here, Lisa, for everyone's sake, is how do the schemes compare? How do we translate one into the other? And what are some minimum standards? If you want to make a claim that something is sustainable, what's a, what's a minimum standard? And so for us, we take this very seriously. We've been certified under ISO 9001. In fact, we just got the report on our last surveillance audit, which was conducted just before Christmas. Um, so we're happy to put our hand up and be audited. Um, we consider ourselves as largely equivalent to two other schemes that exist in the industry, which is great. And uh, I'm chairing a, an international process through IWTO called the Sustainability Standards Task Team, which is looking at coming up with a simple way to compare the schemes and also to define some minimum standards. So we're standardizing uh, the standards. Well, if you think about it this way, <laughs> it's like it's it's standardizing the standards sounds terribly boring. <laughs> so I, I'd like to come up with a more interesting and sexy way to describe it. Okay, for let's me, go for that. <laughs> I think we're coming up with like a an international currency for sustainability in the wool industry. You can translate that into any other currency and you know the exchange rate, essentially. You know how to convert one to the other. The key thing is to come up with an international reserve that everyone understands. You can use that as the basis of contracts and you can convert one thing into another thing with reference to a standard. So personally, I think that's what we do Lisa, we're, our, our job is to help clarify and, and to facilitate efficient trade. The, that's We've been very successful at de developing a, a multiple array of these useful standards. What we now need to do is to basically grow up and do the work, the hard work, the boring work, to come up with a, a standard or a, a set of minimum metrics for comparing them yeah and i think i guess how i see this having developed is that there was this need for certification or standardization of this sustainability animal welfare and so now people because there was this need people started their own standards so to say so it's a little bit like the wild wild west right now but now we are at like a level where we need to actually maybe consolidate or what you said, have like a international standard that it's, kind it's, of fits well, everyone together. I, I agree. I hadn't thought of it as the wild, wild west. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, you're not far off. But let's not, this is not about getting rid of the diversity or restricting people's options to use what they want to use. It's not about restricting commercial practice or the market. 
what it's about is is coming up with a simple way to help people convert one standard into another one um, to facilitate trade and to allow people to explore efficiencies okay and it it's 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 not anti any individual scheme in fact it oh. will always need a proliferation of schemes and companies will always try and differentiate themselves from their competitors yeah. including sadly in the area of sustainability some people will try and out sustain their competitors <laughs> the issue is um, can we make it easier and more efficient and less costly for the pipeline and for the growers because at the moment we have growers i can tell you amongst our members we've got growers that have signed up to four different schemes and when you add in the fact that they also produce sheep meat and they get audited when they transact the sheep they also get they because they produce food grains they also have audits for that an individual grower can have four or five audits every single year mm. and and we call it audit fatigue to me i it's just a it's an inefficiency that we as an industry need to to grapple with we'll end up saving ourselves money and it's part of i used the term before growing up it's like maturing we'll yeah. we'll we'll mature in this space um and um this sort of speaking the language of sustainability in an objective way and traceability through this long pipeline is going to become a must-have language for the future so let's recognize that and put in place what we need to do as an industry to meet that consumer need yeah so that's that's what it's about and you just spoke about the auditing and um i actually never really thought about what you actually have to measure as a grower or audit and because some things are easy like yes you mules or you don't mules yes you give pain relief or you don't give pain relief so these are kind of yes or no but then when it comes to biodiversity um then how do you measure that you know <clears throat> what do you think about this um water quality ground cover litter soil organic matter soil ph um just to mention a few of the things that are becoming part of this specification landscape and they're costly to measure so um you're right auditors it's relatively easy for us to validate if someone's used pain relief they can provide receipts an on-farm auditor will look to see their can uh, look to see their the product they've got in their chemical store they can see the batch numbers they can be provided with receipts um but with land management with erosion control it's much more difficult and one of the things about a lot of where the countries where wool is produced like australia or south africa new zealand i think in the southern hemisphere um all those countries are affected by climatic extremes droughts floods good seasons bad seasons and so what you're monitoring with things like ground cover or water flows what you're monitoring with soil attributes there's an element where there's changes from year to year there's a 
Like we had in the past 18 months in Australia, we've gone from one of the worst droughts on record to severe bushfires that burnt. We had terrible fires in Australia and we had a lot of ash uh, and topsoil in the glaciers in New Zealand because it had blown across the Tasman. Then we had floods and rain. We've had a really wet uh, uh, last six months. And so if you, the country has been transformed. This time last year, Lisa, people were battling bushfires and drought and they had their sheep in confinement pens trying to um, look after them and feed them and stop eroding the country and overgrazing. And then now I, I speak to growers on the phone and they're, they're on their tractor slashing tracks in their paddocks so they can find their sheep because the grass is so high. So it's when we talk about measuring things like biodiversity, water flows, ground covers, those sorts of things, we have to do it across time because the landscape changes. Um, we live in a dynamic, dramatic environment. Um, and that's sometimes really hard for people, particularly in Northern Europe, to get to wrap their heads around. But that's why it's such a good idea to travel to Australia. And I'm not, this is not an advertisement, particularly in the time of COVID, but just to see how we do it. One of the most powerful things for, I know for fashion designers is to come and visit the, the source to meet the people that produce the fibre that they want to buy or they, they want to process. They learn so much and they learn, but also they learn about how hard and how complex it is but how much also growers want to do the right thing. But I also see an opportunity in that because it's not just a quick fix to, you know, add by like make your farm more biodiverse or, you know, regenerate an area. That also means if brands are actually interested or demanding action in that area, they also need to go in long-term. They need to invest long-term because you can't just fix it with one purchase of wool. Absolutely, Lisa. Um, so one of the, the great challenges here, and you remember I used the analogy of connecting conscious growers to conscious uh, consumers, and the brands are part of that connection. For growers to, to let's say, to go from 10% tree cover on their farm to 25%, to fence off their rivers or their creeks. You know, in Australia, a typical farm might be a thousand hectares, two thousand hectares. There could be 40 kilometers of fencing on one farm. So for farmers to one of the things that farmers look for is guidance and confidence to make those investments and make those changes. But also, if you want to measure the impact of what you've done, it takes years to accumulate the data. So like we, a number of our members, I can think of a couple of specific examples, that when you visit their farm, they really proudly point to tree corridors that they put in 20 years ago. They can tell you that they've subdivided. They've gone from having 15 paddocks when their father was managing the farm. They've now got 45 paddocks. That's because they've put in 15 kilometres of fencing 
Um, they've so they've they've there's farmers that are monitoring um, the different species of plant in their pastures, but it, because of the changes they've made with the fencing, with the grazing patterns, they're now seeing a lot of changes occurring in the their pasture, and it one of the it's fascinating if you the same principles and practices apply in Europe. And if you've read um, James Redbank's book about the English Shepherd and his second book that's just been published, now he's up in the, the, I think the Scottish Highlands or somewhere up there in the north where it's cold, damp, and people have really strong accents. Um, he is doing exactly the same thing. And what comes out of his the, the experience in Northern Europe is the care and the time it takes to make these changes. So brands have to be part of that journey. This is not a factory. You can't flick a switch and change everything. This is a biological system. Uh, it takes years, it takes decades. Um, but having said that, one of the most exciting things about all of this, Lisa, is that by putting in place a declaration scheme for sustainability, by making biodiversity important, by seeking to find those growers who put their hands up to be audited, you get to meet the people that take part in these schemes are the people that have got great stories to tell. We're just giving them a platform to tell their story. And that's, as, as you know, because I know you've been on farms here in Australia and I know you've been on farms right around the world as part of your jobs, your, your career. You know the pride farmers have with how they look after their farms and how proud they are to have someone from up in Belgium or Germany come all the way down to visit them, how much they love that. And they, they value showing you what they've done on their farm. So, and I'll, just the last thing I'll say on this, I did a survey of some wool growers um, on what sustainability means for them. And it's really, it's really fascinating because actually a lot of them hate the word sustainability. I mean, people like you and I throw it around. And it's a great word. Brands talk it, consumers talk it. Farmers actually find it a bit frustrating. Because for them, a lot of them, sustainability means standing still. When in fact, mostly what they talk about is leaving the farm in better shape than they found it for their kids. They talk, when you tease it apart, they're stewards. They're not sustainers. They're not, it's not a factory that you keep constant. They actually, they plant trees. They fix fences. They fence off rivers. They... They do things and because they, and if you ask them what they're most proud about, which is a really good question, you ask a farmer what they're most proud about, mostly they talk about what they've done, it, uh, how proud they'd be if their grandfather could see what they've done. Mm. They talk about the previous generations. So it's this time thing. We are talking about improving farms over time and across generations. And it's not a factory. Yeah. So that'll be interesting that this needs to be reflected in the standard then. Correct. And it's a big challenge for us all because we've got to come up with simple ways to do it, to measure it 
cost-effective ways to do it. Um, I mean, I'm part of a process in Australia to develop the sheep sustainability framework, which is basically the industry across the meat and wool sectors getting their head together to work out how do we define sustainability and what should we be measuring and as an industry, you know, what resources should we be putting on the table to quantify some of this stuff? Because a lot of it's beyond the, the reach of farmers, yeah. particularly the, you know, the 40,000 small farms that produce a fair chunk of our wool on Australia, in Australia. So we have to do work to, as part of this journey, we have to come up with ways to help farmers tell that story specify this stuff efficiently and to audit it without having massive cost and time. And now we've talked a lot about these different aspects, um, standards like sustainable have, like also biodiversity, environmental stewardship, etc. But if I think a lot of times the main focus point is the mule thing. Um, that Correct. a lot of brands are, they want these standards because that's their assurance that the wool is uh, music free. And uh, I mean, I would love, because you've been so long also in the industry, and I would love if you could maybe kind of tell us where we are in this music journey. Yep. Um, yep. Because I think a few years ago, I probably wouldn't have even felt I could bring up the topic mule thing. <laughs> but nowadays I find that there's much more openness to talk about it. Um, so maybe you can give us a little bit of a, where are we and where are we going? Okay, well, there's two, like most things, there's a couple of sides to this story. So in a brand and retail demand sense, particularly in the active outdoor wear or the casual wear market, the debate is over. A lot of brands, most brands would prefer not to source wool knowingly that's been mules. So what, and there's one of the things about society, about corporate life, is that we, most companies nowadays have corporate social responsibility policies or expectations on them. So they will be good corporate citizens. And, um, Ethics are really important for how we behave, and certainly corporately. And so a lot of brands and retailers have absolutely understandably wanted to define their own standards for uh, the ethics that are applied on farm. Um, just as some consumers, a lot of consumers, like to source their eggs from free-range egg producers. Um, or their pork from people where the, there's no sow stalls. The, 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 the animals are given a, a chance at a, a life that includes the outdoor, okay? And there are minimum standards for space. So the brands make that decision. Now, to deliver it, they, the supply chain has to be able to specify it and transact it back down the pipeline to the farm. Now, so in terms of demand, absolutely there is a major demand shift away from acceptance of mulesing, even with pain relief. And um, COVID has exacerbated that. Okay, it's, um, 
the traditional weaving outerwear market has been badly affected because we've all been at home lounging around in our pyjamas and not wearing suits. But we've also been really actively exercising. And uh, so the, the base layer, casual, tight merino, active outdoor space has been going gangbusters. Products that can be sold online, okay, where well, you're not too worried about the fit, like with a suit or a, a dress. Um, now, on farm, uh, what the, the trend here is, of course, towards or away from mulesing. But the reality is that we've got a way to go yet. Now, one of the things that I know retailers are annoyed by was that in 2007, our industry made a commitment to phase out mulesing by 2010, I think it was, which in retrospect was just naive, given how difficult it is to phase out on an industrial scale across a huge range of environments. But where we're at now, Lisa, in Australia, roughly one in every five or six bales that is offered for sale at wool at auction, at, at auction, wool auctions, is from a property that has ceased mulesing or doesn't mules. Okay, so that's getting close. That means that in any postcode in Australia, most farmers would have a near neighbor who has ceased to mules. Once you get up to about one in every three, you've pretty much got a, one of your neighbors has ceased to mules, which means um, adoption, when you get to that level becomes, it really accelerates, becomes uh, much more uniform. So it's not, it's not the, the rare exception that is producing non-mules in the merino world now. It's becoming much more mainstream. Amongst the sustainable membership, um, we've gone from uh, 62, the last year, we've gone from 62% of our members mules but with pain relief to 58% and it's declining. Last year, I think 55 wool growers amongst our members have advised us they've ceased to mules. So the trend is in the right direction. It's just taken us two decades longer than we thought. And it will accelerate from here, Lisa, because we're now getting to a critical mass, a critical mass of stud breeders, a critical mass of growers. Um, and the other thing I need to, to communicate is that the combination of that demand and that supply is being reflected in price premiums. So if you have non-mules wool for sale, you get paid a higher price than wool of equivalent specifications that is mules. Okay, we've got strong statistical evidence. Um, I've published for our members some analysis which shows that if you uh, declare that you mules, but without pain relief, or you don't declare at all, you don't tell the trade what it is you do, you've got a much higher chance of your wool not being sold when you go to sell it and having no one bid enough money to buy it. Much higher risk of that. So, Lisa, things are starting to accelerate, which is a, a wonderful thing. It's market-driven, but it's driven by demand, by having specifications like the AWEX National Wool Declaration or sustainable in the marketplace, but also it's driven by 
having an, a critical mass of suppliers now getting um, uh, in place around Australia so that if you and I had a farm and we wanted to phase out but we were unsure how to do it, um, we could, within half an hour, we could be visiting another wool grower who's in the same valley or the same postcode as us who succeeded and we could learn from them. So it's, it's, it's still, we will lose growers over this still. There are growers who believe they cannot stop musing. There are other growers who strongly believe they can and they have. And so our industry now has the genetic tools, the critical mass, it has the specifications. And so this will be pulled through by the market. And to the extent the market wants it, we'll be able to deliver. We already produce more non-mules wool than South Africa and New Zealand combined. So we're, things are progressing rapidly, uh, which is, is great because I've got to tell you as an industry, we're sick of talking about mulesing. It's like everyone's focused on the bottoms of sheep. We need to focus now and talk about sustainability more broadly, about what we do with the land, how we treat the people that work on the land, how we, the quality of the wool we produce. Um, there's some stuff that would be really good for us to talk about as a whole pipeline. Um, but you, you have to absolutely understand why this has been a critical issue for, for brands and retailers. So, and we do. So it's basically positive, Lisa. It's still a way to go, but the, the thing I love are the foundations have been laid. A little bit, what are the kind of hurdles that growers have um, to, to switch? Or okay. Yeah. Well, there's, look, there are a number. So um, if you want to produce a merino sheep that is genetically doesn't need mulesing and is reliably not going to get fly struck, even in a wet year, you tend to have, you can't have wrinkles around the backside of the sheep. You have to reduce the wool color, the wool cover in that area. You have to increase the amount of bare skin, okay? Um, now there are genetically, that is correlated in a bad way with some other productivity traits like clean fleece weight. And so even now in the National Sheep Genetic Database, many of the leading non-mules merino studs, their best sheep, their best sires cut 15 to 20% less wool than the best non-mulesing people. Now, ad admittedly, there will be exceptions, but I'm talking about genetic trends and publicly available data here. So one of the issues that growers have to get their head around is how to manage that. The other thing that, the other impediment, Lisa, is this stuff takes generations to breed into a flock, to breed out. So. The generation interval in the merino sheep is two years. So by the time a merino lamb is ready to have her own lamb, it's, or does, it's in our industry, it's two years. So if you've got a, a ram that's a non-mules ram and you put it over a ewe that's a, a ewe that needs mulesing, the ram will pass on half the genes. The progeny will be ready to be joined in two years' time. 
and in two you've got two years time you've got to join it then to a another non-mules ram and it'll be that animal will be three quarters non-mules and so on at the same time you've got to be selecting for um the genes for making sure that the sheep are structurally correct that their wool is of the right quality the, the right color there's a million things to select for with sheep. If it was easy, everyone had to have them. Um, so there's a generational change while making sure the sheep are healthy and have their babies and are adapted to the environment, blah, 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 blah. And that can take, so five generations is 10 years. And yeah. that's the fifth generation is only a lamb. So that's definitely a big issue. And the other thing is a wool type issue. To overcome the fleece weight issue, a lot of the non-mules people, well, one of the classic tactics is to greatly increase the staple length, which you can do. I've been, I've been involved in breeding programs that do this. And a lot of growers are starting to shear twice a year, or one every seven or eight months, which is great. But you tend to change the crimp or the style of the wool, and that affects some wool buyers because the crimp it's important for some markets. So this is not as simple as flicking a switch. We're talking about a whole, not only a biological system, but also a textile supply chain and products. In Australia at the moment, we have tremendous difficulty getting shearers to shear sheep. We have a real shortage of shearers. So this also weighs on farmers. So I've got to shear now twice a year. It's going to cost me twice as much and it's already difficult as it is to get shearers once so th there are a number of things that um, affect this decision so it's not a decision taken lightly ever there's a lot of thought there's a lot of concern that, uh, that growers have about this but as i say we're now getting to the point now where one in every five growers merino growers or five, one in every five bales is from a place that succeeded down this pathway. I know personally some very, very large corporate agricultural enterprises. We're talking over a million hectares and thousands of bales have made the corporate decision that they've got to stop using. So this will, mate, this will change, Lisa. Without belaboring it, there's, it's, it's, it's not like this is not a factory. You can just swap the machines over, hit the button, and it all works seamlessly. This is a biological system. There's adaptation. There's culling rates. You have to keep the factory alive and producing while you genetically change. Yeah. And there's other things like the wool type and things like shearing, the big logistical issues. But most farmers I know uh are not ignorant of these issues they think about them deeply but first and foremost they care for their sheep they care for their land and their families so these are not decisions taken lightly and one thing that i've noticed because you've mentioned you know like in 2010 there was this claim being made that you would you know the industry would switch by this date and I, but i think also the debate has changed within like the brands and retailers I think in the beginning they probably just also kind of said oh yeah we need this now and change from one day to the other but i find that 
um, because there are more and more people really um, now being more knowledgeable in these brands and retailers that the, they better understand the difficulties and, and the, the discussion has become more refined. Oh, Lisa, you're, you're right. It's, um, and one of the great challenges for us is because of the, how long and complex our supply chain and the tyrannies at distance, it's connecting people in sourcing offices, in retailers through to farmers. But the Walmart company does a tremendous job. Uh, a number of our supply chain management companies um, do a tremendous job in exposing their buyers, their retailer contacts, their, their brand contacts to what happens on the farm. Um, but, you know, the more we do, things like sustainable will have a role to play here also because uh, we help contextualise the production. And we also allow brands and retailers the ability to access individual growers. Um, if a brand, a sustainable brand partner is interested, they can, we can certify which farm, where, it's GPS coordinates, property identification code, we've got all that information. If they want to contact the grower, they want to see information about the farm and how they do it, they've got that first-hand connection. That again is one of the most positive things about this information pipeline we're creating because it is a shared experience pipeline. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for this very open discussion. I really enjoyed it. And I started in my last podcast a new uh, thing in, called the lightning round. So if you're up for a few more quick questions. Lisa, I'm ready. I'm prepared. Let's go for the lightning round. Okay. What's your favorite cheap breed? Uh, the Merino, of course. Okay. Is there any specific within the Merino? Uh, I call it the modern merino. So modern. It's, okay. it's, it's, it's big, it's not wrinkly, it's fast growing, got long staples, it has lots of lambs, it's a good mother. But I've got to tell you, I'll confess, I also love there are these miniature sheep that are being bred to graze in vineyards and things like that called baby doll sheep. I reckon I'd love to have one in my backyard as a pet. I think I could be a very good sheep owner, one sheep. But in my backyard. Okay. <laughs> and have you ever shorn a sheep? I've shorn three sheep, Lisa, and it was traumatic for the four of us. Oh no. But I also I also have I've got two labradoodle dogs that live in our house. So they have to be shorn as well. So I shear dogs. So okay. look, I'm an expert shearer. Excellent. And then what's your favorite wool benefit or characteristic? I love the fact of the many things that wool is and does. I love the fact that wool is made of 50% biogenic carbon. Wool is, we've stored atmospheric carbon in a beautiful, functional, biodegradable form that we can wear, doesn't burn. So I love the fact that we're part of the carbon cycle. We're part of the solution. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, and what's your favorite wool product that you actually own? I have several, as you might expect. So my all-time favourite is a Red Island T-shirt that I was given a long time ago, which is absolutely tattered, but it is my favourite thing to sleep in in winter. Bloody fantastic. But every single day I wear merino underpants that I've sourced from MacPack. 
I love Macpac. I love Merino undies. I love Macpac undies. Um, I'm not dang, not worried that I'll catch fire, but they're just beautiful. A beautiful, comfortable product. So that's my absolute favorite product to wear. Okay, and you and I do not get paid for saying that Macpac um, underwear are great. I'm actually Absolute, also wearing I, them I, right now. <laughs> I, I'm being honest. I'm, I can prove that I'm wearing them right now as I speak to you, Lisa. I could too, but let's not do that. Um, what's the oldest wool product that you own? I've got my mother used to knit jumpers. And my dad worked in the wool industry in the hand knitting yarn business for a company called Payton's. I've still got one of my mum's hand-knitted vests that uh, was made for me when I was about 18. And I will have it for the rest of my life. It's a beautiful product. I wouldn't say it's absolutely trendy, and but it is something that is very, very special to me. And one of my sons is going to inherit this jumper. I just don't know it yet. <laughs> yeah my father was wearing on christmas a sweater a wool sweater from 1957 which i thought was also quite See, that's isn't that beautiful and that's one of the things about wool yeah um is that they become like artisan pieces that are handed on across generations and yeah they have stories it, to tell it, it, stories to tell so mm -hmm. my um <clears throat> i normally joke about this jumper that mum um, for me. And I used to take it to wool grower workshops to talk about longevity. And my joke was that it's this jumper my mum made, it's, I can't wear it next to my skin. It, it'll, it'll stop a small caliber bullet if it was ever fired at me. And it's too tough for the, for the um, moths to eat, but it's a magnificent product, mum. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Last question. What is the most exciting wool product or wool application under development that you are aware of right now? This was, it's, this was a hard one to answer because I can think of a couple. So with your indulgence, I love the fact that you can buy merino knit shoes or wool shoes now, wool knitted shoes. I love the work that's underway for wool for treating um, dermatitis and eczema and those sorts of things. So medical wool. And there's an exceptionally important development coming through, which is going to affect all sheep. And that is the work that's underway at the moment, developing um, food additives or dietary additives for sheep to stop the methane emissions and make them more efficient. That's going to be a game changer in our industry. And it's very, very exciting. Okay, well, then that looks like we have more podcasts in the future that we need to cover these kind well, of I, topics about. <laughs> I, well, if you're interested, I can, um, there are, for, there, for example, as a CSIRO scientist who would be great to talk to that's involved in that. It's a great story. This one particular CSIRO doing is a product. It's using a seaweed called asparagopsis, which, and they're, they're cultivating it Uh, they're doing trials with indigenous populations in Australia. Growing the seaweed captures carbon and uses um, uh, solar radiation. The product dramatically impacts uh, the methane emissions, but it also makes the sheep more efficient because methane is energy lost. Um, 
And then when you think about our most farms, when you think about the opportunity that then creates in terms of them being carbon positive, seriously carbon positive. Um, so that's, and the wool industry has put money into this area. Uh, the meat industry in Australia has put a lot of, the sheep meat industry put a lot of money in. Watch this space. It's going to be a, a game changer. Okay, cool. Rightio. Well, thank you so much for your time, Paul, and it was really interesting. And good luck with sustainable well, wool and all the challenges so I, that come with it. I hope we talk again in less than four years. Yes. And <laughs> um, But no, I, I enjoyed it. There's more to talk about and there's a, a journey that we're on as an industry that you and I have been involved in back years ago. And we're just a bit further along and there'll be more to talk about. Excellent. Anyway, good night from Australia. Lovely to talk to you.